Praise the Lord. I'm so glad we're all here this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking about a pretty somber topic this morning. So I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Up to this point in our series this summer, the summer in the Psalms, up to this point, we have seen David in a pretty good light. Wouldn't you say? We've seen him in such a way that people would be like, you know what, I need to be like that guy. I need to have faith like that guy. I need to pray like that guy. I need to sing like that guy. He's been seen kind of in a good light. But today we're going to see what is exactly the reality of every character in the Bible you're going to see. No matter where you find yourself in the scriptures, whenever a man is propped up, there will always be a destruction or downfall in their lifetime. The purpose is, is that way you could observe those qualities found within those people, but not see them as the one to see. David is simply a shadow. David is simply an image, kind of a precursor to what to expect later on down the road. A much better David. But this morning we're going to find out through the Psalms, the reflections of a man who went deep into the depravity of sin. But up to this point, we've seen him in a particularly good light. He had the faith in the deliverance of the Lord in the face of Goliath. He, was delivered, he delivered oppressed people while he himself was under the burden of a vengeful king. He abided in steadfast faith of the Lord to fulfill his promises of David being anointed king of Israel. He would lead the people of Israel in worship and praise as the Ark of the Covenant is returned to Jerusalem. And then David would receive the final covenant promises which bring clarity regarding the Messiah about the Lord's promise to build His people a house and establish an eternal kingdom with a king uh, that would not be lost. But like every man you see in the Bible, outside of Jesus, a demonstration of failure and frailty is observed is observed. No man ought to see themselves higher than they ought to. They should not. No man should be put upon a pedestal. No man should be coming across your lips as the example or glory that is due to God because of something that you learned from them. We are simply vapors, dust, that God, by His grace, has allowed us to showcase His glory in this world through our time and our life. David is not whom you should be looking to saying, Oh, that's the standard. That's the guy. Israel did that and they failed. And as a matter of fact, we'll see later on throughout the history that people would abide by David and say, That's our king. And other people in Israel would be like, That's not our king. Does that make sense? Hashtag not my king. And they would divide over the whole thing, splitting the kingdom. Examples of men in the scriptures are not to be lifted up to a place where you say, you know what, I'm going to make an idol of this person. Because the reality is, is how great the fall some of these men are going to be. Because we're going to see as David digs deep into the depravity of his own sin, that he will reflect the exact sample and example of Adam and Eve in the garden. That whenever God came looking for them, they found some measure of way to try to cover up, 
to try to hide themselves and cover their shame so as to not be revealed. So, we will be diving into the reflective psalm of David in the midst of his own sin. I would like to invite you this morning to stand for the reading of the word of the Lord if you are able. Our text this morning comes out of Psalm 51. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him and after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and hold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For I will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. This is a heavy psalm. There's a lot of poetic language here that David uses for very specific reasons. And we're going to be talking about some of that language that he uses to showcase what it means, what the correct response should be in the midst of their own sin, in the midst of conviction, in the midst of you being found out. When the Lord calls upon your name as He is walking in the garden, when you try to hide from your sin and your shame, But he calls your name and beckons to you. Where are you? The psalm was written after David infamously engages in some some grievous sins that would cost him dearly. Now, as you know, that is my motive operandi. I prefer to read through the scriptures, but uh, to save you all the headache this morning of reading an extensively long portion out of Second Samuel, I'll summarize for right now. But don't think that we're not going to be going through some scripture this morning, because we are. So I hope your fingers are ready, whether on your phone or on the Bible itself. So, this is what happens. 
After what, all the stuff that we've seen in the life of David, David and Michal, they get into this little tiff about him going and praising the Lord and recognizing that God is now king and that he himself is prince over Israel. He rejoices and has wonderful things to say. He has seen the goodness, uh, the goodness of the Lord. He has seen the steadfast love of the Lord, that the Lord, as he speaks, is assured to fulfill his promises. So David takes the throne. But in the midst of him taking that throne, in the midst of him becoming the king, or as he describes the prince, of Israel, there's still some problems, there's still some trouble, and he goes out to dispel these issues. And we talked about that last week. That in your life you're going to have enemies, external and internal. And that we have been given the tools in Christ Jesus on how to make war with our sin to be purged and become clean, to become conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. So David goes out to begin to make battle with all these armies. But, upon his return home, the very first, the very first verse in 2 Samuel 11 says, Now this was a time and a season where the kings would go out to battle. But David was at home. David stayed home. He just returned from battle. When while the, all the other kings, it must have been a good season. So it must have been summer, like in Alaska. You're like, we don't really fight in snow and stuff. It's no good. So this was the season, apparently, when all the kings like to come out and make war with each other. And David was like, I'm not into that. So he stays home. In the midst of him staying home, he was out on a terrace. And he observes a woman further off bathing on the roof of her house. Instead of being what you'd think, and be like, oh, I shouldn't look upon that, he stays a while, observes, and goes and sends for her. Servants bring her back, uh, and he lays with her. Now, there's a lot of debate within biblical scholarship on whether or not David took advantage of this young girl, using his authority, as prowess, or not. We're not given those specifics in Scripture. But he lays with her and she becomes pregnant. She becomes pregnant. David, out of fear of being caught, out of fear of what was going to happen, he sins for Uriah. Now, Uriah was one of those men. Do you guys remember the 600 men that went with David into the cave and they did all the things while Saul was chasing them? Uriah was among them. So David out of fear of being caught in his own mess-up, sends for Uriah. Uriah comes back, wonderful soldier, says, Yes, my king, how can I be of service? He says, Hey, take some time off. You've been at war for a while. Have a few drinks. You know, um, Enjoy yourself. Go home to your wife and see her. Well, Uriah doesn't do that. Uriah's like, uh, No, there's war going on, and my men are out there in battle. So I'm not going to do that. So he sleeps by the door of King David. David sees him and he's like, Oh man, I've got to get this guy and his wife together. So he tries to get Uriah drunk. He tries to get Uriah to drink up wine to get him inebriated for him to go home. But Uriah still doesn't do it. So David's like, man, what am I going to do about this guy? I mean, I've impregnated his wife and he's right here and he won't go home, so how am I going to take care of this situation? Okay, I know. Send Uriah to the front lines of the battles. 
so that he is assured to come to destruction. So Uriah, being a good friend, a good soldier, faithful to the throne and to Israel, does what his king tells him to do. And he goes to the front lines, and that's where he dies. And the scripture says that he dies of the sword of the Ammonites. And we're going to see that here in a moment. David, out of his own fear, chooses to dig deep into the, his own depravity to cover up for a, a sin that he'd done. So much so that he spent time conceiving of an idea to destroy the man to whom the wife belonged to. Now he can't testify in court. So whenever this situation comes about, if Bathsheba is brought forward and people say, why is she pregnant? He can say without Uriah knowing, because he's gone, oh, Uriah came home from war, got drunk, and impregnated his wife. It was an opportunity for David to kind of get out of the situation. But he dug so deep into his depravity to try to cover it up that he was willing to kill a friend of his, a faithful soldier who didn't deserve anything that he got. So if people want to ask you the question of the topic of theodicy and say, why do bad things happen to good people? And you say, because sin exists? There's your example in Scripture. Uriah did nothing wrong. And yet the king, out of his own wickedness, had an affair with his wife, killed him, and then took her for himself. We're going to see how the Lord responds to such a thing. He was not very happy about this. And we're also going to see this morning how the Lord responds to sin and that there actually is consequences to our actions. That even though we may plead to Jesus to forgive us of our sins, that there are still consequences that make a ripple and an impact on those around you. That Uriah would lose his life because of somebody else's mistake. And that the Lord would not allow Uriah's situation to go without justice. That David would feel the full weight of the consequences of his sins. David has many chances to realize his actions. After he laid with Uriah, he could have immediately gone to the temple and repented. He had many chances. After he realized that she was pregnant, he could have gone and repented. He could have confessed to the priest what he had done. He could have confessed to God what he had done. There was many opportunities where David could have had his heart checked in the midst of this process. Do you remember when he nicked off the corner of Saul's cloak and the Lord struck him immediately in his heart? He got convicted over cutting off some clothes. But he had no ears to hear, no eyes to see, and a heart that was closed off. He was in the midst of being very Adam. I want to cover this up. Because if I can cover it up, does it still exist? If nobody knows what I did, does it still exist? David had many opportunities. David continued to double down in the consequences of his sin. Rather than repenting of it for his initial sin, he seeks to cover himself just like Adam and Eve so his shame would not be seen. The depths of his depravity drove him to commit more egregious sins in an attempt to deal with his mistake. So here's the question I have for you this morning. What is the proper response when God reveals our own sin to us in conviction? 
What is that proper response? Now, the scriptures say, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, if you try to go and look that up and look up what people preach about it or think about it, you're going to get a million different answers. A million. They're going to tell you, like, oh, you know, if you do this or that, then the Holy Spirit will leave you and you have to beckon Him to come back and all this other stuff. Quenching the Holy Spirit is saying, I don't want to hear anymore. When the Holy Spirit is engaging in your heart, feeling that conviction, that shame for the things that we have done, that's supposed to draw us to repentance, quenching the Holy Spirit says, shh, 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 I don't want to hear it anymore. I want to be rid of my sin. I want to be rid of my shame. Or I want to double down. I'm not sorry for what I did. I don't care how it affects. I'm supposed to be happy. I want happiness. I want this. I want that. So shh. Quiet. David. David closed his ears, closed his eyes, and closed his heart. Which is why he asked for a new one. Because in the midst of simply nicking the corner of Saul's clothes, the Lord convicted him. But as David stayed home while the rest of the kings were out in battle, he was already making a mistake. His intentions were already off. And then looking upon a woman, instead of taking the opportunity to hide his face, which is what you're going to see in Psalm 51, Lord, please do not hide your face from me but blot out my transgressions. He could have hid his face to look away and all would have been diverted. But he didn't. He engaged more and more and more and more. So what is the proper response when God reveals our sin to us in conviction? Number one, number one, there is grace. There is grace in Revelation. There is grace in in Revelation. This comes from Psalm 51, verses 3 through 6. 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Now, just to make a quick side note, there is a difference between an iniquity, a transgression, and a sin. And if you were here, I believe, Good Friday last year, we defined each one of those. The way that we respond in have our action and being inside of this earth that causes an infraction as due to sin, there are several different ways. You could outright just do something bad directly. You could unintentionally do something bad but with, uh, with good intention. Theravada Buddhism, which is very popular in Cambodia, propagates this idea that good karma is based on intention no matter if there's a negative outcome. So you could see, if you understand the history of Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, that genocide that happened there, two million people, they weren't held accountable because Pol Pot, his intentions were good for Cambodia. Now do you see? You could do something out of good intention with a wicked outcome and it is still a transgression, still iniquity. And then if you make a word, a promise to somebody, and then don't fulfill it, that's also a form of transgression. That you have said something to somebody to promise them, to make them build trust, and then you wreck that trust by doing the opposite. 
So there are various different ways that we... Because to sit there and say, oh, everything's a sin. I mean, yeah, if you directly do something, yes. But you can sin, like Jesus has explained, that you could look upon a woman, which we're going to see here in a little bit. If you look upon a woman like David did, with lust in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. So your intentions are in check too. Your spirit is in check too. So there is grace found within Revelation. Let's continue on. Verse uh, 4. Verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That means unrevealed. Secret doesn't mean that it's hidden from you. It just means unrevealed heart. That portion of your heart that you can't just get fixed with a bypass or whatever. It's that seed of your eternal soul, the hidden. So my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. This is the conviction. This is the reality that the conviction of God is the grace of God for the sake of repentance. David finally had to come to realization for what he was doing. And you're going to notice as we dive into 2 Samuel here in a moment that it took somebody else coming up to David saying, Bro, what are you doing? I'm going to tell you a story, David. I want you to hear it out. You're going to see here in a moment how the prophet Nathan had to come and actually present the value. I'm not meaning good value. The value before David and say, hey, weigh this. and see what you think. You're going to see how David responds. My sin is ever before me. A response found in Psalm 51 of a repentant heart is the recognition that conviction has come upon you. Conviction has come upon you and you can see it. You could see it, you could feel it, shame is there, that you are not trying to seek to shed off this stuff. You're not trying to cover it up, you're not trying to forget it, it is ever before you. Conviction is the grace of God for the sake of repentance. It is a beckoning to your soul to call you to repent saying, hey, if you continue down this path, it will destroy you. Hey, if you continue doing this, you're going to hurt a lot of people. You're going to hurt your friends and your family. If you continue down this road, you're going to lose your reputation and your character. Turn now. Repentance is not saying, oh, my bad, Jesus, and continuing to walk that way. It's saying, oh, you're right. And we've used that illustration before, that hook and the rod from a shepherd pulling you away from a serpent as a sheep is to get you away from that danger and death to turn you to somewhere else, to good pastures, things that are going to benefit you. So conviction, having your sin ever placed before you, is the grace of God for the sake of repentance. Conviction also seeks to turn the sinner back from diving deeper into the depravity of their sin. David had many opportunities. He had many opportunities to have his self checked at multiple points. The fascinating thing I find out is why nobody around David was like, Hey bro, you can't send Uriah to the front. What are you doing? The servant that went and got Bathsheba should have been like, 
Hey, king of Israel, who led us into worship as the king of Christ, God came coming into the camp and you establishing and leading us in the glory that is God should not be having some woman who is somebody else's wife come to your house while all the rest of the kings are out in battle, while her husband is out in battle. But there was nothing. There was nothing. Conviction seeks to turn the sinner back from doing God diving deeper into the depravity of their sin. Against you alone have I sinned. Now, this is a crazy part. This portion in Psalm 51, people will sit there and tell you that it doesn't matter how it affects everybody else. Because the reality is the only person you're sinning against is God. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of that argument. Because you're basically saying, I'm going to make an action and I'm going to cause a lot of pain and hurt that I don't care about because truthfully the only person I sinned against was God. That is not the format of this particular text. It is not saying He doesn't care about Uriah. That God doesn't care about Bathsheba or any of, anybody else who's affected in this situation. The reality is, is, had not been for God revealing the sin that happened to him, the grace that he has found, and the conviction that he is going to see here in a moment, he would not have known that he had even been sinning. Majority of the cultures at that time relished in the taking of somebody else's spouse. They relished at the idea of being the more dominant one. In Babylon and many of the other nations that surrounded Israel, it was okay for a man to take whatever he wanted as long as he was strong and conquering. And it was not accounted to him as a negative. So David writing here for you, I've, I've sinned alone, is the recognition that God has revealed in His truth what sin is and has defined it. So the reality that sin, that we have actually caused sin, is true that we sin against God alone. But the effects of our sin ripple throughout, causing much damage and much hurt and much mistrust. The sin portion to whom we need to seek redemption comes from God alone because He has revealed that law to you. But reconciliation is all the work you've got to do after that. That you are going to have to reconcile with all those people that you hurt. This text does not give you permission to be like, I'm going to say some stuff that is really rude and really mean, or do something against somebody and just ask God forgive me and then walk. I don't care any longer. God forgives me, so I don't need anybody else. That is a wicked way of thinking. That's not how it's supposed to be. A pastor who sleeps around with members in his church an adultery against his wife is not shouldn't be like, oh, my bad guys, and just leave with all those people who are now wrecked because of what he had done. Now, if I had it my way, I'd make that pastor stand there until every single member came up and he reconciled with everybody for what he had done. But apparently, I guess that's cruel and unusual punishment, I guess. But the reality of our sin is the, the truth of the matter that God set the standard. Objective, uh, moral objectivity is defined by God. And that is the law that we have broken. But it's not in recognition that everything else that happens because of our sin gets cast aside. This is the recognition that God defines sin. This is what Paul writes in Romans 7. He defines to help us understand what is meant by this. What then shall we say, this is Paul... That the law is sin by no means. 
Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not, not, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. David saw Bathsheba and was like, mm, I like that. I want that. That's covetousness, by the way. Had not that been revealed, Paul would not have known that he was even coveting in the first place. Let's continue on. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Means you could do whatever you want if there was no accountability. If God had not given you anything to define what moral objectivity is, had not established a standard of law by which we are to live by, then you could do whatever you want because there was nothing there to define what you were not supposed to be doing. But Paul says, oh yeah, we've got a law. And you know you've done wrong because that law exists. Continuing on, I was once alive apart from the law, meaning he could do whatever he want. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What does that mean that he died? He was held accountable. The standard. He's like, oh, you mean you really meant what you said in the beginning? That sin does bring death. That defining good and you know, right and wrong by my own terms, being God, like Adam and Eve desired to be, is death. So as soon as Paul recognizes that the very thing he was doing was called covetousness, he realizes he was dead. I used to be alive apart from it, but now I'm dead. Continuing on, verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now do you see what Paul is meaning here? That you can connect it with what David is saying? For you, against you alone have I sinned. Why? Because God, you are good and you are righteous. You are holy. And you have defined for us what we should and should not do. And I have broken that. Therefore, I've sinned against your law. That term sin just means an infraction. It's an archery term to miss the mark. Which I would say David way missed it with this one. He wasn't like, oops, you know, my bad. I didn't know what I was doing. Yes, you did. And this is clear by his recognition and repentance. Had it not been for the graciousness of God defining sin for us, we would not have known that we were enslaved to it. Had we not had the commandments given to us, we would have been walking around enslaved and didn't realize that we even needed to be redeemed from it. Had God not given us the law, we wouldn't recognize that we would even need redemption. So Paul is articulating that, hey, if it had not been for God giving us this law, we wouldn't even know that we sinned. But since we know that we sin, redemption is possible now. Because now I recognize I am, I am not up to it. 
I cannot match his holiness and righteousness, therefore I died. So how am I going to live? At the end of chapter 7, what does Paul say? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And that's Romans 8. highly recommend reading that. It's great. So let's go find out what happened to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Let's find out how David come to realize his sin. And the Lord sent Nathan, which is the new prophet, because remember Samuel had died. Nathan had replaced him as the prophet. To David, he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. Oh, a parable. Oh, this is great. Because I'm pretty sure if Nathan, being the newer prophet, came right to David and be like, You wicked sinner, you need to repent, you, you filth. He'd probably get killed in that moment. So the prophet came and was like, Oh, let me tell you a story. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. I'm pretty sure David at this point would be like, man, that guy is really close to that lamb. I was a shepherd. You don't get that close. Verse 4. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and her, or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David feeling pretty bold in this moment. He still sees the value of sin. Nathan, being very clever, wanted to test David to see if he had eyes to see and ears to hear. Now do you see why Jesus says that? All who have eyes to see and ears to hear, let him hear. If your eyes are closed, you're not going to see nothing. If your ears are shut off and you determined for yourself and justified your sin and said, no, I'm doing right, then you don't have ears to hear. So Nathan is saying, all right, David, are your eyes open? Are your ears open? Let's find out. Obviously it is because David gets extremely angry at the situation. He's extremely angry at the situation. Continuing on, verse 6. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he had did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, listen to Nathan, what Nathan says. You are the man. You are the man, David. I'm so glad you're upset about this situation because you're the traveler. You're the guy who came in, brought in, and wrecked things. You had a bunch of things. You were the traveler. You were once outside and you were brought in to become prince of Israel or king. Depends on his perspective you're looking at. King of Israel, and you were given many wives. And this one guy, this one guy had one lamb. And you just had to have it. You are the man, David. Nathan provides insight and showcases the value of the actions David had taken. He, prevent, he provides the value. Like, consider this, David. What is it? 
in the manner that is recognizable by David, Nathan placed the sin of David before him. Now do you see? My sin is before my eyes. The presentation before David was a testimony on if David shall have wisdom regarding his sin. Sometimes it takes a Nathan in our lives to place the weight of our sin before our eyes. Sometimes it takes a buddy and be like, hey bro, what are you doing? Why are you talking to her? Why are you messaging this person? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Sometimes it may take a Nathan to be like, man, I've mean, I got to tell you a story. This news is crazy. To snap you out of whatever it is you're going through. Remember, the Lord sent Nathan to David to reveal this. There's that grace there again. Because David was heading down a path of destruction. Sometimes it takes Nathan in our lives to place the weight of our sin before our eyes. Jonah, the prophet, was sent to a wicked people with the weight of judgment being placed before the eyes of the people. We find this in Jonah 3. Now, if you know Jonah, Jonah was not very happy about it, so he preached the shortest sermon ever. But he did preach it because the Lord made him do it. Jonah chapter 3, starting verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Now, just a little background on Nineveh really fast. They were a vile people. Now, if you watch Veggie Tales, they slapped each other with fishes. But what they did in reality was they were like the epicenter of human sacrifice. They loved giving fresh blood to the Baals. They were vile people. They will go and conquer a city and take people alive just so they would have something to offer. So, of course, Jonah didn't want to preach to them. You know, if I was being honest, I probably wouldn't either. It'd probably be pretty scary to walk in there and be like, you guys are all sick and need help. And they're like, kill him. Put him in the idol, which they did. And if you've heard me over and over again, I talked about this when it comes to Molech and Marduk. Continuing on. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. This is the words of the king of Nineveh, mind you, after hearing the shortest sermon ever. I think it was uh, like six words in Hebrew. He was like, uh, judgment's coming, God instills it, and you're all going to die. And he just dips out. The, Nineveh, the king of Nineveh hears these short words of oncoming judgment and sees the grace found within it. Because God didn't have to send Jonah at all. He could have just dealt judgment upon wickedness and they would have just been another skid mark in history of wickedness that they just kill. But God didn't. He sent grace by the name of Jonah, which he didn't see himself that, that way, and they repented. They repented. So what did God do? 
Jonah did not like this. What did God do? Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. Because the Lord forgave them. And this is what Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? He tells God, when God says, go to Nineveh and preach the gospel, tell them of the impending judgment, he goes, no, because you will forgive them, because they're going to repent, because you're merciful and gracious, sarcastically speaking. Listen to what he says. He's like, bro, I told you you were going to do this. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah did not want to preach the gospel or preach to these Ninevites because he didn't think they deserved it. They were wicked people. He was not. They're gross. He's clean. Why do they get redemption? He was pretty mad about it. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah was a little eccentric. Go preach to the Ninevites. No! Tarshish! I want to run as far away as possible. I don't want to live anymore because you're merciful and gracious. I don't know of anybody who prays like that. But Jonah did. He was mad about it. He was mad. He was mad because he knew that whenever he would go and present disaster and judgment, that God was extending grace to the Ninevites. Because now the Ninevites had the opportunity to repent because judgment was before their eyes. Their sin was before their eyes. Jonah didn't like that. John the Baptist said the same thing. John the Baptist said the same thing. He recognized what was happening in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. I love John the Baptist. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Excellent message. For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Can you imagine Matthew writing this? Matthew, who was a tax collector adorned in fine clothing, looks at John the Baptist and like, He's a wild man, and he wears weird clothes. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. Verse 6, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I love it. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruit in repentance and keeping in repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves we have Abraham as our father for I tell you God is able for these stones to raise up children for Abraham even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees (laughs) every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire gotta love John the Baptist 
He calls them a brood of vipers. Now, immediately, you'd be like, oh, seraph, serpent. Yes, he's calling them the devil. Kind of. But this term actually comes from Psalm 140. Psalm 140. And this is why I find it absolutely intriguing that John the Baptist would use this language. Because listen to Psalm 140, just the first few verses. It's not on the screen, bub. It's okay. I've got it here. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongues sharp as serpents. There it is. Seraph. And under their lips is the venom of asps. Selah. John the Baptist turns to these Pharisees and Sadducees and says, Wait a second, why are you here? Who warned you of the wrath to come? Why did grace get extended to you, O brood of vipers? You guys are the ones causing the problem. But he didn't stop there like Jonah did. He went ahead and said, All right, since you're here and you know the wrath is coming, bear fruit in repentance and be baptized. Love John the Baptist. The reality is, is that when sin is brought forward before you, when you see it before your eyes, that is the grace of God extended to you saying, you're headed for destruction, turn from your ways. That conviction that you feel in your heart when you do something you're not supposed to or accidentally said something you're not supposed to is to say, hey, you probably shouldn't have done that. Take heed to that. Because guess what? The Lord didn't have to convict you of anything. And you could have just marched on on. Mom, I'm still sinning. I'm still sinning. I don't feel bad. This feels okay. I'm okay. If it feels good, it's right, right? But the fact that God brings conviction your way, you should just be like, oh, I'm so glad that He stopped me because, oh, the destruction and damage that I could have caused later. James says, do not, do not say that God tempts you. God tempts no one and is not tempted by anyone. You are tempted because of your own sinful desires, your own passions of the flesh. Therefore, your flesh is causing you to be destroyed, to cause you to sin. Grace is being extended to you by the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you might want to stop. Conviction for the sake of repentance is pure grace. Judgment by a righteous God can be enacted at any moment. He could do whatever He wants. When conviction comes, it is a measure of the grace of God be extended to you for the sake of bearing fruit and repentance. To be cleansed and renew, have a new, renewed spirit within you. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. And we find this in John 16. John 16, starting in verse 7. Listen to what Jesus says regarding that which was to come, the Holy Spirit. He said, It is an advantage to you that I go away. Listen. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. You're like, whoa, that's a huge statement. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You perform miracles and provide the words of life. And He's telling you, disciples, listen. It is an advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the Helper, Paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Listen to what His role is. And when He comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Do you want confirmation that you are saved? Are you convicted? Do you feel that just moment of, like David called it, a pricking of the heart? That's his job. 
to reveal to you what you have done. To convict the world, continuing on, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. What a grace we have in conviction. Conviction confirms the reality that you are bought and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That Christ paid the cost for you, redeemed you, cleansed you, placed His Spirit within you, so that way you don't lead yourself to destruction. Conviction is the grace of God. But there's a reality. Conviction and redemption are there, but there's a reality. Number two, the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. Second Samuel, starting in verse 7. Let's continue with the story. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you to be king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. So what is God saying to David? Hey, bro, remember me? Remember what I've done for you? And why you are where you are? Continuing on. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel. Listen to the words of the Lord here. If this were too little, if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. He's saying, David, is that not enough for you? Was all this not enough for you? That you had to go and take this one lamb, this one wife, to kill the guy. He continues and he places places it forward before him. Verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah. But wait a second. Didn't the text say that it was he was struck down by the sword of the Ammonites? We'll get to that here in a second. Struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. There it is. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Now for those of you who know the history of David, this is absolutely true. Sons try to kill him. They kill each other. It is just a mess. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. That's the goyim. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. If this were too little a thing, the question being beckoned to David is this. Is it not enough to have all that I have given to you that you should desire such which does not belong to you? Is all the blessing that I provided you not enough? This is also known as covetousness. Whenever you dive into things and, and desire things for sin, whenever your flesh draws you towards something, that is the question. Is that what you have not enough? That you would go and do such a thing. That was the question being beckoned to David. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You have killed him with the sword. Notice that God equated the motivations and intentions of David. Though he did not actually drive the sword into Uriah, he equates it and counted it as murder against David. You killed him, you struck him down. 
He can't be like, oh, you know, you know, they did it. I just, you know, he just happened to be in a bad spot. God equated the motivations and intentions of David, though he did not actually use the sword, was counted as murder. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon of the Mount. And I find it intriguing that these two particular things were the illustrations that he used. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. God has equated the intentions of David as the sin of murder. This is a transgression. This is a transgression. This is him utilizing the situation to his favor to achieve his end without him actually doing it. I didn't actually do it. Notice that God equated it. Right after this, Jesus speaks about adultery. How funny is that? He starts with anger regarding the intentions of murder and goes right into adultery. Listen to what he says. This is what he has to say regarding it. If your eye causes you to sin, he's saying, if you lust in your heart, you commit adultery. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it is far better to go into the kingdom with one eye than it is to lose your whole body in hell or Sheol, Gehenna, whatever. I love that Jesus used both of those examples. Because didn't David just do both of those things? Did he not kill Uriah? Did he not lust after the woman who was not his with his eye? When Jesus was given the Sermon on the Mount, these two particular sins would have stood out like crazy. They're like, oh, wait a second. They're talking about David right now. He's talking about David right now. David did those things. But there were consequences regarding this thing, the intentionality. The sword shall never depart from your house, David. The consequences of the conquest by sword that David engaged in will be realized in the division of the kingdom after Solomon. People reject the throne of David, and the events of First and Second Kings happens. There's so much calamity over the fighting between Israel and Judah, who splits over the throne of David, actually, will lead to the loss of the kingdom itself to Babylon. Did the sword leave the house of David? No, not at all. It caused the destruction of the, the kingdom. It caused it to be lost. Such calamity. You did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and the sun. David tried to do everything to cover up his sin. Like Adam and Eve did in the garden. He tried to hide it. He tried to not allow his shame to become apparent. He tried to cover it all up. And so the Lord says... You know what? You did this thing in secret. I'm going to reveal it to the public about what you did. You're not hiding from this. You are not hiding from this, David. Listen to the words of Jesus here in Luke 8. For nothing is hidden that I will not make that will not be made manifest. Nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Another way of saying this is your sin will find you out. David tried to hide it. 
Lord said, mm -mm. no. You may have been spared your life, David, and we're going to see that here in a second, but there's a consequence for sin. Second, second Samuel, starting in verse 13. Listen what the consequence is. David said to Nathan, here we go, now he's repenting because he got caught. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. You'd think David would be like, oh, yeah. whoo, dodged a bullet. But verse 14's coming. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Wait, what? Well, you spared my life, but why would you kill the son? I did what was wrong. Why would you kill the son? It's intriguing. This is not just an act of cruelty. David's life is an imagery of what Christ was going to be. We have been given this dominion of this world. When God created mankind, He said, Take dominion of it. It is yours. And what did we do? It was not enough to have everything. Adam and Eve had everything. Sands, one tree, one fruit. They had everything. But it wasn't enough. David had everything except for that one woman. And it wasn't enough, so he took it. So guess who would bear the weight of the consequence of David's actions so that way he could live? The son did. Anybody who reads this without an understanding of biblical theology on how God is not just cruel and just uses situations like this to be mean, like, I'm going to teach you a lesson, David. It did teach him a lesson. But verse 13 says, you've been delivered from your sin and you won't die. But the son is going to bear the weight of that sin. This is a revelation on what the son of David is going to be. Does that make sense now? The son of David will bear the weight of the sin of all of us. So that way we may live. Intriguing, is it not? In the midst of repentance, David is spared from death. But the consequences of his actions are not removed. We should not think that when we sin, that the forgiveness found in being cleansed of sin does not mean that the consequences of our actions are removed as well. It is pure arrogance to take a bite of the forbidden fruit and think, oh, I'm not going to die. It is pure arrogance to sin, go to church and be like, Lord, forgive me, and think that what you just did has no effect. That there's no consequence of what you're going to deal with. You may have been set right with God, but reconciliation is going to have to happen too. When a man commits adultery, the wife and the children feel the impact. Families are wrecked. A man's honor is lost. He is disqualified from many things. He may be forgiven of his adultery, but guess what? There's a lot of mess. And you can't just dip out on that. There are consequences for our actions. There are consequences for the things that we do. 
When gossip is spread about someone, their livelihood could be at stake. Their reputation could be severely damaged. It can cause rifts in their family. There are consequences for our sin. We can plead like David did to be cleansed, and we will be cleansed. But people are hurt in the process. Oh, but God causes suffering in the world. No, we do. We do. He tries to deliver us from it. He tries to send conviction and say, no, stop. Cut it out. Don't do that. But we wreak havoc in the dominion. We cause pain and suffering everywhere. And people everywhere say, oh, why would a good and gracious and loving God do such a thing? He didn't. You did. We did. We don't cheat on our spouse and say, why is she upset? We don't have negative habits like drinking alcohol every single day to try to drown out some pain and wonder why our liver is gone. Why would God do that to me? You did it to yourself. God is not kind. He's not gracious and loving. Yeah, He is. Because He's the one who's trying to get you out of it. From your very own destruction. You want to solve the problem of theodicy? Look in the mirror. There you go. You don't have to be a scholar to approach philosophy. You're the problem. I'm the problem. God is the one who's trying to relieve the problem. Bring reconciliation and redemption and healing to those people. There are consequences. In the same way that good works produce good fruit that is beneficial to those it is applied to, sinful works produce bad fruit that poisons all who come in contact with it. If you are producing bad fruit in your life, notice that you're not eating the fruit other people are. You're producing sin and bad fruit. People are eating of it, and they're the ones getting damaged. <laughs> but whenever you produce good fruit, they come to you needing to take it a bite and to taste and see that who is good? God is good. You produce good fruit, they come to you because they're going through a problem. They've experienced something detrimental. They're experiencing a hardship at their work and their family. They may have a problem with their own son or daughter or they may have an issue with their mom and they're coming to you to eat from the tree because you're producing good fruit that brings life. Is it you? Yeah, you're the tree, but who's the vine? Who's the one that's providing all that you need to, pro to produce good fruit? There's a consequence for our sins. So here's the story. It's a hard one to read. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 15. It's a hard one because David deals with it face forward. Then Nathan went to the house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? 
he may do himself some harm. Well, if you were concerned about that, bro, you probably should have told him when Bathsheba was in the house. I'm just saying. Verse 19. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He's dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he had asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child is still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord would be gracious to me that the child may live. Wasn't that the same question the king of Nineveh asked? Verse 23. But now he was dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Now listen to this. This is one of the biblical arguments regarding abortion and childhood death. This is how we can articulate that when a child dies, this idea that, oh, he didn't believe in Jesus, he didn't confess and get baptized, so where does he go? Listen to David's words. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David recognized through faith that the child's not coming back because he's died. But David will one day go to him. That's a pretty powerful recognition regarding this story. That in the midst of it, in the midst of his own sorrow because of what he himself had done, the child would bear the affliction of David. And yet David had hope in the midst of it. He had hope in the midst of it. It's a hard story to read. But this is the reality that we all need to come to comprehend. Paul writes in Galatians 6, this instruction. That we need to all understand this. To think that our sin has some value and produces things in our life. Verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. So if you make decisions in sin, it's going to cause an effect. And you're going to deal with it face to face. If you speak about somebody and gossip, and they hear about it, and they come to you, you're going to deal with it. If you cheat on your spouse, lie at work, whatever whatever you want to come up with in your mind, you're going to come face to face with it. And if you don't, I'd be a little nervous. Because if you come face to face with it, it means God has revealed it to you. He said, you've got to deal with this. Verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Household of faith. Rest assured, your sin will find you out, and it does have consequences. But, in the midst of this story, we're going to see that redemption is also found 
and repentance. Because the story doesn't end there. So let's continue on. Number three, redemption in repentance. Redemption in repentance. God is not cruel. Even when we are in the midst of bearing the weight of our consequences, through David's repentance would come a son who will bring blessing to the people of Israel, Israel, Israel for a time and build the temple of God. And build the temple of God. Let's continue on the story. Verses 24 and 25, 2 Samuel. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. What does it say? And the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So the word Jedidiah means loved of the Lord. (laughs) So don't make fun of all those Amish people who are named Jedidiah. It's an awesome name. I'd rock it if I could. David experienced something that he was not given privy to. He did not deserve it. Bathsheba, she needed some redemption because of what David did to her. And she got it. Did David deserve that? Bathsheba did. The effects of David's sin upon Bathsheba, the Lord met with. Do you guys remember... What happened when Abram went into the houseworker that Sarai gave to him to fulfill the promise? And Sarah cast her out. What did the Lord do? He heard her cries and met with her and made promises. Abraham's sin shouldn't have cost her anything. But the Lord redeemed it. And he redeemed Bathsheba in the midst of this moment as well. What is the appropriate response to our sin? What should be the beckoning of our souls when the grace of conviction comes knocking on our door? How does someone approach God when their sin has been revealed to them? David showcases what he learned in the face of his own failure that could be the prayer of our own convicted hearts. Psalm 51, starting in verse 7. Purge me, with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That phrase means burden of shame. He is downcast because of what he has done. And I love that he attributes those broken bones to the Lord. Because the Lord is the one that brought him face to face with his own sin. Verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Blot them out. You know what blot them out means? It's a scribing term. They used to write, to blot out was to take ink and drip it on the area so it couldn't be recognizable anymore. So whenever it says our sins are blotted out in Christ... They're not recognizable because they're covered. And that which is being blotted out is the blood of Jesus blotting them out. David asks for this. He seeks for this. And you're going to see that the reality found with this blotting and purging with hyssop are found in one place. 
found in one place, purged with hyssop. Hyssop was used by the Israelites to cover the door with lamb's blood. Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. Then Moses called to the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is on the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. He will not allow it to enter your house to strike you. Purge me with hyssop. And what did the Lord do? What did he say to David in the midst of his own repentance? Death will not come to you. But Jesus also, regarding the Passover lamb and hyssop, listen to what happens to him while he's being crucified. John chapter 19. After this, so Jesus has been on the cross for a while. After this, Jesus, knowing that all is now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of, our, of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Kiss the sun. When Jesus had received the sour wine, that's when he says to Telestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Purge me. With hyssop. Cleanse me and make me white as snow. Not only was David delivered from death, but the hope that he found and that we have in Christ Jesus is that the blood that this hyssop has dipped in is his blood, which is the new covenant that washes you clean, blots out your transgressions and your iniquities, and gives you a renewed and right spirit. Purge me. With hyssop. The appeal to be purged with hyssop and cleansed is to seek for the stain of sin to be removed from us. The shame that we carry as blemishes from the mistakes we have made wear upon our hearts with heaviness. The only way to be rid of such blemishes of death that mark our souls is to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb who took our sin and shame to the cross so that repentance is possible, forgiveness is possible. Once we are cleansed, our hearts, once we are cleansed, our hearts need to be set anew that sin does not make itself known again. David recognized this problem. It is not our actions that need to change. Actions, behaviors can change. Whip a child and they'll tell you that behavior can change. But that doesn't change the heart. Laws can never change the heart. It can affect your behavior though. David asked for a renewed spirit. It's on 10, uh, verses 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, nor, uh, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. There may be times when you need to be reminded of the joy that you felt when you first come to know the gospel, to know what it felt like to be cleansed, to remember of all that weight that you had carried off, that Christ bore for you. Sometimes the joy of your salvation needs to come alive again. So that way your spirit and heart are renewed to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. Christ secured me at such a cost that I'm not going to do that anymore. Remove the weight of shame, a heart that desires good. And this seals it all up. This is the sacrifice that God desires from us in a place of repentance. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In closing, I have some words from a beautiful hymn. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can my sin erase. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of works, tis all grace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In conclusion, three things. One, conviction of your sins is the grace of God to bear fruit in repentance. Two, what we reap we will sow, even though we may have forgiveness in repentance. Number three, our hearts are able to be cleansed and renewed by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord. Renew the joy within us of our salvation. Renew that joy within us at that first moment when you realize how good the good news of the gospel actually is. That at your loving kindness and mercy and grace, you bore upon yourself the Son, the weight of our sin, and died in our stead that we may have life. Lord, may we not forget. May our minds never wander from the cost related to our sin that you carried to the cross for our stead. That you provided a measure by grace of conviction that repentance is made possible. That through the blood of Christ, forgiveness is made possible. Lord, may our hearts be renewed. Create in us a clean heart, O God. Purge us with hyssop that we may be whiter than snow and restore to us the joy of your salvation. 
that we, like David, will go and tell transgressors and sinners of your good and gracious works, your magnificence and your glory, the good news that they too may see and hear and know that repentance is possible, that life and forgiveness and cleanliness is possible. Oh, precious is the flow that makes us whiter than snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.